video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? <laughs> Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We, we've got to stand firm in His truth. We've got to stand firm on His Word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me again in Bible study today. We have begun, if you've been with me for these past weeks, a study of this amazing letter of Paul to the Romans. The more we study it, the more amazing it seems to be. But this is our fourth session in this book. A few weeks ago, we looked at verse 2 and how God can have every detail of our lives foreordained from eternity past. And yet, we can still be free moral agents. If you haven't seen that, you might want to listen to that. Then we looked at verses 3 and 4 and considered this enormous problem we have today of many, many people around us talking about Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. <laughs> he's a Jesus of their imagination. He's not the real living Jesus who's revealed to us in God's Word. 
So we saw that last time, but there's something else that's really, really important here in verse 4, and I want to take a little time to examine it before we move on to verse 5. It's so, so critical, and we don't want to just gloss over this. It's that little phrase at the end of verse 4 that says, By his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead. So let's read this passage again just to get the context. This is Remember, this is how Paul is beginning this fabulous, incredible letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his introduction. So last time we looked at verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're not going to leave verse 4 yet. We're going to look at how Jesus was declared to be the son of God. That's what he tells us. This is how he was declared. He was declared to be the Son of God, God the Son, come in the flesh, and this tells us how. <laughs> Notice he says there's, there's power at work here. There's amazing, enormous power of God at work here in declaring Jesus to be God, who he really is. That power was demonstrated in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. No one had experienced that kind of power before. Nobody had seen that kind of thing before. Oh, I know. We, we talk about Jesus raised some people from the dead, and there were a few people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. But those were not real resurrections to glory, resurrections to eternal life. Those were not conquering death. Those guys all died again, right? Yes, of course. They just were temporarily revived so they could live a little while longer. All the way through the history of mankind, death has been our ultimate enemy. God told Adam and Eve in the garden when they chose to believe the devil instead of God himself, when they chose what seemed good to them, what made sense to them at the moment, what seemed like the right thing for them to do at the moment, instead of listening to God and what God had commanded, they chose to do it their way. They rebelled against God. They embraced sin. They listened to the devil. And he said the consequence for that is death. They chose sin. They actually chose death. That's the consequence of sin. It always is. And they died. And all their descendants die too. We all inherit the sin nature of Adam. And we all choose to sin, don't we? Just like Adam and Eve. We choose our way over God's command. We're living in a time when people are actually trying to enshrine that as a great noble choice to choose your way. Ignore what God has to say. We'll talk about that more another time. But we've chosen to believe the devil's lies instead of God's truth. And he's going to underline that in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 12 for just a minute. Therefore, 
just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And you know what? Satan was able to use death to enslave mankind to, to Satan himself. All of us, every single one of us, you understand that? Before we're set free by Jesus, Satan controls people. And one of his tools is this fear of death. People are terrified of dying. He spells that out in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. He became one of us. Why? That through death, listen to this, that through death, talking about Jesus' death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, that this is us he's talking about now, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No human had the power to conquer death. I don't care who, how much money they had. I don't care how much power they had. The greatest kings who've ever lived, the greatest thinkers who've ever lived, the greatest philosophers, the wealthiest men, the greatest spiritual leaders, they all eventually yield to death. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 says, And the wages of that sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus didn't sin. Death had no claim over him. And yet, what did he do? He died anyway. He yielded himself. He voluntarily gave himself up to die for three days. But then in the greatest act of power the world has ever seen, he was raised from the dead. <laughs> he didn't stay dead. We're told in 1 Corinthians, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who what? Raised him from the dead. So it says, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Look at Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells in you. So God's telling us here, just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he will someday raise all of us in whom his spirit dwells, all of us who trust Jesus, just as he raised Jesus. He'll do that through his spirit. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, talking about his body. And he said, in three days, I will raise it up. By the way, this may look like a bit of a contradiction to some people. We, we kind of solved this one last week, talking about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. God reveals himself as a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look back in Romans 8. We, we looked at that a minute ago. We're, we're told God the Father would raise us up. But in John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Look what he says next. And I, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who's doing it? God the Father or Jesus? Who raised Jesus? God did. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are involved here. The three are one. <laughs> Seems fitting that that's pointed out, that's emphasized for the most important event in the entire history of the universe. God the Father raised God the Son. God the Son raised himself. The Holy Spirit is involved in this resurrection. 
greatest event in the universe. Now, I know some of you might be saying, wait a minute, Steve. Well, I thought the, his death on the cross was the most important event in history. Isn't that the most important event? Well, you can't argue with that, of course. It was on the cross. Jesus died in our place and died for our sins, paid for our sins. But there's no way to separate his death on the cross from his resurrection from the tomb, is there? We can't separate it. Without his resurrection, it would have meant death had defeated him on the cross, right? Just like death had defeated every other human being who's ever lived in the history of the world. No, the cross and the resurrection go together. When Jesus came out of that tomb, <laughs> that was the moment when Satan knew his doom was sealed, he was totally defeated. Now, we know Jesus defeated Satan on the cross because Jesus died having never, ever committed any sin, and he won that battle on the cross. But the resurrection from the grave proved that Jesus had conquered Satan and conquered death. Death had been undone. Death had been conquered. Sin had been conquered. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's not miss this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain too. Pointless, meaningless. That's what he means by in vain, right? Futile, no value. Three verses later, he says, he, he, same thing, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. It wasn't enough that he died on the cross. He had to conquer the devil and conquer Satan, and he did that when he conquered death and rose from the grave. Proved his, his victory. But you hear what he's saying, right? If the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen, if it's just a story, a myth of some kind that a bunch of men wrote together at some point, or maybe as some people try to claim kind of a story that emerged out of a bunch of tall tales or something, then we might as well just stop what we're doing right here and just go home. I mean, this is silly. If he still did. Verse 32, Paul said the same, it's still in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If it isn't true, we may as well just enjoy our food and drink while we can, because when you're dead, you're dead. It's all over. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's all over. But, of course, Paul says, but the truth is, of course, Christ has been raised from the dead, and that changes everything. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. We're also going to be raised from the dead, just like Jesus. Now, we don't have time to look at all of this today, but... This event is so important to God that he's chosen to provide all kinds of evidence for anyone who's willing to look at it. It's the most important event in history, and God knew from eternity past that there would be people in our day, and not just our day, but certainly in our day, who would ridicule it. They would say, the people don't rise from the dead. Come on, give me a break. Resurrection of the dead? No, 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 no. Dead men don't rise. God knew that men would come along who would try to basically cover up the clear evidence for the resurrection. They didn't want to believe it. So they would say things like, oh, there's no way for us to know what happened 2,000 years ago. So long, there's no way for us to know really what happened. I mean, some people just made up some stories about Jesus, maybe hundreds of years later. Maybe they're trying to make Jesus look good, made up stories that he rose from the dead. And, and he knew that people would laugh at it and ridicule it, anybody who realized the truth. So what God providentially and beautifully and graciously did is God provided lots of evidence. He's basically saying, look, there's no excuse for you not to recognize that my son has risen from the dead. I've living, given you lots of evidence if you're willing to look at it. Now, a lot of people don't want to look at it or they'll sort of claim to look at it. But their goal is to try to figure out a way to explain it away. We've had that throughout history, of course. 
So God has seen fit to make sure that there are several lines of evidence that make it very, very clear that the only explanation for the facts of history, the only explanation is that Jesus conquered death. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, having said that, I feel kind of sorry to have to say what I'm going to say next. So stay with me here. I'm afraid there are many, many Christians in our day who might hear everything I've said up to this point, or maybe everything I'm going to say in this study. And they may even say, well, that's kind of cool. I'm glad God left all that evidence, but I don't need it. I'm already trusting Jesus. I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know he's alive because he's changed my life, right? So I don't need to see the evidence. There's a problem with that response. You see, God commands us in his word that we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to make a defense for what we believe about Jesus. We need to be able to give an answer. We need to be able to explain to other people why we believe what we believe, even though they find it hard to believe. Now, I know I've got a lot of Christian friends who don't like what I'm about to say. They'll say, look, God knows how to convict people's hearts. All I have to do is say, Jesus will save you, read the Bible, and you can be saved. And that's true, you can be. But God commands us that we ought to be able to make a defense. It's not a command that we can just say, well, I don't like that command. It takes too much work. I'd rather not think about it. So I'm going to ignore it. No, in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Make sure he's set apart in your heart as Lord, of course. And then he says, always being prepared. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet he said, do it with gentleness and respect. Be gracious, be Christ-like, be kind, but be able to give a defense. Now, most Christians are, are not really thinking much about that command. And if our defense to honest skeptics, and remember there's more than one kind of skeptic out there. Some of them are very honestly looking for truth, and some of them are just trying to argue. But if, if there's a sincere skeptic there, and they want to know the truth, and we say, well, I know he's alive. How do you know? Well, because he's changed my life. He lives in my heart. I know he's alive. Now, every Christian should be able to say that, of course. We ought to be able to say, yes, of course, Jesus is in my life. He's changed my life. If he hasn't changed your life, you probably don't know him, right? And there are some honest skeptics who will say, okay, tell me more, and we can talk about how he's changed our lives. And that's a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying anything negative about this. I'm just saying we don't quite go far enough. We can say, well, he made me a moral person. He, he helped me conquer sin. And he might say, well, okay, good. I, I know some atheist friends who are wonderful moral people. I mean, after all, you guys aren't the only good people around. And you might say, well, he lives in my heart. And they can say, well, that's just kind of your subjective opinion as far as I can see. I mean, I, I, what, you know, how do I know that you're not just having an emotional experience here? You know, the Mormons tell me they know their religion is true because they have feelings in their hearts. You ever heard them talk about that? The burning in the bosom it's supposed to confirm their beliefs when you read the Book of Mormon. You remember that? And I said, what, what makes you different from them? I mean, you know, they're claiming the same thing, right? Now, listen, guys, please stay with me. Don't get irritated with me. Just stay with me. This is our problem. We know that Jesus is living in us. We do. If we're saved, we know Jesus has saved us. We know we can trust his word. We know we can trust him. We know he's alive. He's living in us. But listen, listen carefully. Knowing something is true in my heart 
and being able to show other people that it's true are two different things. And what I, what many of us want to do, you've heard me talk about this and kind of complain about this before. A lot of us want to take the difficult things God has told us to do and delegate it back to him. God, you do it. Uh, it's like, it's like God says, I want you to be able to make a defense. Well, Lord, you just convince them. <laughs> I'd rather them just read your Bible and get convinced. But I don't want to have to do that work. See what I'm saying? It's kind of like, you need to learn how to share the gospel. But that's a lot of work, Lord. I'd rather you just convince them. I'll just, I'll just say what little I know. I'm not going to work on learning how to really share the gospel more effectively. Or you need to learn how to do spiritual warfare. Oh, Lord, you just take care of the demons. I'm just going to look at you and I don't, I don't want to do the spiritual warfare. Or you need to do church discipline. I don't want to do church discipline, Lord. You do it. That's hard. That's not fun for us. You see, what? we're all guilty of that. We want to delegate back to God many, many things that he's told us to do. He wants us to get ready to show other people who've been brainwashed by the enemy, who've internalized the propaganda from the world. He wants us to be able to help them see that what we believe is true. In the same letter that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write that command for us to be prepared to make a defense, he also so commanded us, this is what the old King James says, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> ESV translates it, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? Prepare your mind. Do you remember how Jesus told us we're to keep the first and greatest commandment? I bet you remember what the greatest commandment is, don't you? Look, look at how Jesus says this in Matthew 22. Don't miss this. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, period. No, <laughs> if you're looking at the screen, you know there's no period there, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what a lot of Christians say. I love the Lord with all my heart. Jesus didn't stop there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your what? You see it? <laughs> With all your mind, he wants us to use our mind. He wants us to exercise our brain. He wants us to use some self-discipline here. This is the great first and great commandment. You hear what he's saying? You get it? Not just all your heart. We're quick to say, oh, I love God with all my heart. Well, we better. I hope you love God with all your heart. But Jesus said, you better love him with all your mind, too. Look at this verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Every athlete exercises what? Self-control in all things. They're doing it to receive a perishable wreath. We're doing it, doing what? Exercising self-control. Why? Because we're going for an imperishable wreath. Look at this from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is, but you can list these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. God's not giving us a spirit of fear but power and love and self-control. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with what? Self-control and self-control with steadfastness. Stay in the battle to the end. Steadfastness with godliness. These are commands from God. Look at what he said in Proverbs in the Old Testament. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This is serious, guys. 
And, and I'm telling you, it's one of my frustrations in life. <laughs> and I know I need to be careful, but I can really get frustrated about this. There are so many parents out there who are teaching their kids to be self-controlled and self-disciplined in order to do well academically in school, for example, or in order to do well on the football field or on the basketball court or the tennis court or in gymnastics or dance or track and field. Now, don't get me wrong. I think these things are wonderful, guys. Please don't misunderstand me. I think, and, and if, you, if you're involved in that, you know you've got to be self-controlled if you're going to do any good, right? You know you've got to exercise self-discipline. It's not always easy. But listen, so often when it comes to the one area where self-discipline is most important of all, we seem to think we don't need any. We seem to think it's no big deal. And we need to be praying with diligence that God will raise up an army of self-disciplined spiritual warriors across our land. Why? Because we're in a very serious battle. We're in a serious war against some very nasty spiritual enemies. They're destroying our people. And it and, and God wants us to be part of that battle. <laughs> I know. So he said, Steve, <laughs> calm down a little bit here. Why are you yelling at us like this? And, and, and what does this whole have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? I thought we were talking about the resurrection. Here's why. God's left us some powerful evidence. He wants us to be able to share that with other people. But it takes discipline. Have you learned how to share the gospel effectively? That takes some discipline, doesn't it? Have you learned how to study the Bible effectively? That takes some discipline. Sure it does. Have you, have you memorized some of God's word? Have you learned how to memorize scripture effectively? That takes discipline. And just, just as you have to use discipline to do spiritual warfare and, and, and to understand your spirit, do you understand your spiritual gift? It takes discipline to study spiritual gifts. We have to use discipline to learn how to obey 1 Peter 3.15. So, for example, it would be good for all of us to make it a point to learn a little bit at least. I mean, there's, this could go on and on forever, but we can all learn a little bit of how God used archaeology, for example, to point people to his truth. We need to be able to share a little bit of how God has used the preservation of ancient manuscripts and early historical records to point people to his truth. We need to be able to know a little bit of how God has used molecular biology and the second law of thermodynamics. And I don't, you don't have to be a biology professor to do this to, or a physics professor. You, you, you can study enough to, to get the gist of it so you can help people see how God uses those things to point us to him. We need to know a little bit about how God has used Old Testament prophecy to point us to his truth. We need to know a little bit about how God has used the cosmologists who study the universe to point us to his truth. It's amazing. You see what God's done? He's chosen to sprinkle evidence like this throughout our world, and he makes it available to us. Why? So we can study it and learn it and share it with others who might really want to know. Now, I want to set up a little kind of thought experiment in your mind. I want you to stay with me here. <laughs> First, remember what Paul's attitude was toward the church before Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. You know what he was doing, right? We looked at this a few weeks ago, if you were with us. He persecuted the church. He ravaged the church. I'm using scripture here. He dragged off men and women. He breathed out threats and murder. He maintained a raging fury against the church. He tried to destroy the church. He brought Christians to Jerusalem in bonds in order to punish them. 
You remember Saul was there when Stephen was stoned to death, don't you? You remember that? That was probably about a year after Jesus had been brutally beaten and crucified and, and risen from the dead. And the persecution was so severe at that point in time that many Christians began to flee Jerusalem. They had to leave their homes. You may remember that Herod Agrippa had James killed with a sword. You may remember that eventually Peter and Paul were both brutally martyred in Rome. You may remember that Josephus wrote about the martyrdom of James. We, we saw that the other day too, the half-brother of Jesus. The Roman historian Tacitus, we looked at some of the things he wrote the other day. He also wrote this. He said, he's talking about Christians here. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero actually tied or nailed Christians to poles and poured oil over them and burnt them alive at night to eliminate his gardens. Later, you may remember Christians were fed to hungry lions in the Colosseum to entertain the wealthy Roman citizens. You may remember that other Christians in the early part of the church, the early history of the church, after the Bible was written, but men like Polycarp, Polycarp was burned to the stake, burned alive by an angry mob of non-Christians. You, you may remember Peter wrote his letter to the Christians who had to flee their homes for their lives. They were living in a foreign place because they had to flee persecution. The best records we have tell us that all of Jesus' apostles were martyred except the apostle John. God had a very specific reason for John giving John a long life. We'll look at that at another time. What I'm trying to do here is help us realize, in a, in a nutshell, being a Christian in those early days was not an easy thing. I think you probably are aware of that, right? Do you know why they were so hated and why so many of them were killed? It's, it's because they wouldn't compromise what they knew to be true. And they were spreading a very unpopular message for most people, unless the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts to change them. Most people hated this message. You remember the Jews hated Jesus. Remember that? They hated Jesus. That's why he killed him, right? That's why he gave his life. They wanted to kill him very early in his ministry. They hated him. They hated his message. They wanted him dead. And now here are his followers saying the same kind of things Jesus had been saying, doing the same kind of things Jesus had been doing. And they're determined, we've got to stamp this out. Saul was part of that effort. You may remember the Romans worshipped many, many gods. At the top of their list of gods were the emperor himself. Remember that? And the Romans were fine with anybody who might say something like this. Well, Jesus is one of many ways to God. You have your way. I have my way. We'll all just be happy together. But, but, but they couldn't tolerate Christians who said, no, Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the way to God. He is the only way to God. And none of these other so-called gods, including the emperor, are true gods. They're just idols. They hated that message. They didn't want to hear that. They had to stamp it out. So Christians were hated by Jews and they were hated by Romans. Now, have you thought about that much? Do you realize that these early martyrs had a pretty easy way they could have avoided being put to death? I mean, pretend for just a minute that you were one of those early apostles of Jesus. And you're about to be killed because of your testimony about Jesus. You know how you could have stopped it? Stop them from killing you? 
All you had to do was say, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait just a minute. <laughs> I'm not really sure about this. I mean, somebody said that somebody else said that Jesus had risen from the dead. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was just a rumor. I'm willing to back off here. Okay, let's, 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 let's calm things down a little. No, no, no. His disciples could not do that. They did not back off. They would rather die than renounce what they knew to be true. Jesus had conquered death. They knew he had. They'd seen him. They'd been with him. They'd hugged his neck. They'd talked with him after he'd risen from the dead. There's no doubt in their minds. So, yes, they're willing to die for what they know to be true. But listen, men don't die for what they know to be a lie. Do I need to underline that? Men do not die for what they know to be a lie. Men don't die for what they even think might possibly be a lie. You got to really be convinced of something before you're willing to die for it. And these men were there. They would have known whether he was really alive or not. It was right there in their time. Those, those are the days of his resurrection. And they were willing to die horrible deaths rather than renounce Christ. That's powerful evidence that they knew Jesus had certainly risen from the dead. And he had certainly appeared to them. And here's these early followers. And, by the way, after they sealed their eyewitness testimony, they'd been with him, they'd seen him, they'd given the testimony, and now they're willing to die rather than renounce that. Well, any of their kids or grandkids or friends or other extended family who might have known them but might not have been with Jesus personally themselves, they would know it must be true. Peter wouldn't have died if it wasn't true. Paul wouldn't have died. James wouldn't have died for a lie. <laughs> they must have been with Jesus, just like they said. And that explosion in the number of Christians in the early church, in spite of this fierce persecution, could only mean one thing. There was no doubt in their minds. Jesus was alive. Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, that's not all the evidence. That's pretty powerful evidence, I think. But, but think about the fact that there was an empty tomb. The body was missing. The Jews paid soldiers, if you remember, a large sum of money to tell other people that the disciples came and stole the body. Remember that? Matthew told us about that. But that's obvious nonsense because none of the disciples would have given their lives if they had the corpse of Jesus laying there somewhere. I mean, they're not going to die for Jesus' corpse. Others have claimed, well, maybe the Jews or the Romans stole the body. That's even more nonsense. If the Jews or Romans had stolen the body, all they had to do to shut up the disciples and stop the movement and say, look, there's his body. There's his dead corpse. That would have stopped Christianity in his tracks. But, of course, the disciples didn't have the body, and the Jews didn't have the body, and the Romans didn't have the body. Jesus had his body, <laughs> and he was very much alive in his body. <laughs> and he proceeded to spend 40 days with his followers, hundreds of them, teaching them about the kingdom of God before finally ascending into heaven. Now, God's given us even more evidence. You can, you can watch it in the Veritas videos if you want to in the Resurrection of Warriors of Christ, but let me just mention a couple more things really quickly. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead who he appeared to first? Women. Women. And women were considered unreliable witnesses. Their testimony was not allowed in a court of law. So if men sometime after this supposedly happened, we're simply making up a story, concocting this story and writing down this story that's made up and, and just a myth that they're making up. And, and they're trying to say, well, let's, let's say that Jesus rose again from the dead. And they're trying to impress the readers. And one of them said, well, let's say he appeared to the women first. Another one said, are you crazy? That's dumb. <laughs> Why would you do that? Nobody accepts the testimony of women. No, no, if we're going to have him appear to people after his resurrection, it needs to be some wealthy, powerful men who can give a testimony. No, that's not how it happened. 
The truth is this, Jesus first appeared to women, and that's the way it's written, not to deceive, to reveal the truth. <laughs> Another fascinating passage, I think, is John chapter 20. You remember when Jesus was crucified and his body was placed in a tomb, Mary Magdalene came on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, early to the tomb, early, I mean really early, it was still dark, before sunrise. And you know what she found? She was, she was utterly amazed. The stone was already gone. The stone was already removed from the opening of the tomb. So what she did is immediately ran and found Peter and John. Said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> but so she told them what had happened, what, she, what she'd seen. And Peter and John ran to the tomb. Now let's read it beginning of verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is John. Uh, that was considered the way you should write something. John's writing this uh, account, so John doesn't name himself, the other disciple, and they were both going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And some people are going, oh, what, what's the big deal here? Why is John recording this? What's the significance of these linen cloths? Why, why does he put this in God's Word? Well, it's very, very significant to Peter and John. And the early readers of this account would have understood why this was so significant. In that day, they used a substance called myrrh. You, you may remember this when they wrapped a dead body in grave clothes, myrrh. But myrrh was a sticky, gummy, resinous substance, kind of like pine rosin before it hardens. You know what I mean? Kind of sticky. Have you ever gone through the woods and touched a pine tree and get that stuff on your fingers? Yeah, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to get off. It's very sticky. Well, myrrh was that way. And it was used to cause the wrapped grave clothes to stick to each other and to the body. It was done intentionally. So the grave clothes would stay in place. So if someone had come into that tomb and taken the body out, they would have either taken it grave clothes and all, which would probably be the way they would have stolen the body, because it would take a while to get that stuff off. Or if they did decide, let's just take it off here in the tomb, it would have been a mess. Sticky, jumbled cloth, all torn apart and wadded up, a mess. Instead, we got a picture of grave clothes lying neatly there like a cocoon that's been left behind when Jesus rose from the dead. It was obvious to Peter and John, nobody has removed the body. Nobody took off those grave clothes. Jesus had risen right out of them. There's no doubt. And for anyone who wants to know the truth today, there's still no doubt. <laughs> Jesus is alive, guys. He's risen from the dead. And we knew that already, right? But we need to be able to communicate that to people who don't know it. Anyway, <laughs> That's how Paul's beginning this fabulous letter. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to internalize this truth. Help us to understand that you've given us an awesome opportunity and responsibility to share the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Thank you, Lord, for using that to prove beyond doubt that Jesus had conquered death, that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is God the Son who came and died on that cross sinless to pay for our sins and conquered death, conquered Satan, conquered the grave forever so that by trusting Jesus, we too could have victory over death and hell and the grave and Satan and our sin. And Lord, what an awesome message you've given us to share with others. 
And Lord, we know we're living in a time when many, many scoff and sneer and laugh and ridicule what we believe. But Lord, surely there are some out there who are honest skeptics. Surely there are some who are willing to listen to the truth if we'll just share it with them. So bring them into our lives and help us to be able to share these things well. I pray it help us to get equipped. I pray if there's someone praying with me right now watching this video who realizes that they've really not been very disciplined, they've not really studied like they should, they've been disciplined in other areas of life, but they've been lazy Christians, I pray, Lord, that you would convict them so that they too would get serious about learning how to give an answer to anyone who might ask us a reason for the hope that's in us, learning how to make a defense. Lord, be in charge of us. We know we only have a certain amount of time, and this life's going to be over, and we don't want to waste it. So, Lord, please help us to use it for your glory in any way you choose. Get glory through us and help us to be effective as we share the gospel with others and help others understand that it really is true. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We pray it in his name. Amen.